0: Well, let me invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Acts chapter 24, as we continue our studies in the Apostle Paul and his uh, gospel ministry, not only through the three missionary journeys, but now to the uh, Jews and even the Roman uh, leaders. So we're in Acts chapter 24, and I'd like to read a lengthy section Verses 1 down through verse 23. This is Paul on trial before Felix, the Roman governor. And we'll look and see uh, what the the Lord has to teach us from this passage this morning. Reminded in uh, Psalm 119, the author writes that I rejoice at your word as one who finds great spoil. And what a blessing, what a bounty, what a treasure we have in the Word of God. And so it's our privilege to humble ourselves and by God's Spirit to profit from the reading of God's Holy Word. Acts chapter 24, starting in verse 1. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders with an attorney named Tullus. And they brought charges to the governor against Paul. After Paul had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying to the governor, Since we have through you attained much peace, and since by your providence reforms are being carried out for this nation, we acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness but that I may not weary you any further, I beg you to grant us by your kindness a brief hearing. For we have found this man a real pest and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And he even tried to desecrate the temple and then we arrested him. And then this next section is included in later manuscripts, not the earlier manuscripts, so it's... I. Doubt that it's inspired, but we'll go ahead and read it. We wanted to judge him according to our own law, but Lysias, the commander, came along and with much violence took him out of our hands, ordering his accusers to come before you. By examining him yourself concerning all these matters, you will be able to ascertain the things of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the attack, asserting that these things were so. When the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul responded, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense, since you can take note of the fact that no more than twelve days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. Neither in the temple, nor in the synagogues, nor in the city itself did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot, nor can they prove to you the charges of which they now accuse me. But this I admit to you that according to the way, which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection both of the righteous and the dead. Excuse me, the righteous and the wicked. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before both God and before men. After several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings in which they found me occupied in the temple having been purified without any crowd or uproar. But there were some Jews from Asia who ought to have been present before you and to make accusation if they should have anything against me. Or else, let these men themselves tell what misdeed they found when I stood before the council. Other than that, for this one statement, which I shouted out while standing among them, for the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you today. But Felix, having a more exact knowledge about the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will decide your case. And then he gave orders to the centurion for him to be kept in custody, and yet have some freedom, and not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. And may God bless the reading of his word. As we uh, look at this particular uh, passage uh, this morning, we are uh, looking at the Apostle Paul now having to defend himself uh, before Felix and before the Jews that have come from Jerusalem now to uh, accuse him. So this is more or less of of an official trial. The others have been somewhat preliminary, but this is more of of an official uh, trial that's taking place. Now, the Roman law dictated that the accused had the right to face his accusers. And in chapters 24, 25, and 26, basically we are now entering into three major trials that Paul will have at Caesarea before Felix, before Festus, before King Agrippa. So all of this is taking place at Caesarea. He's going to be there for about a two-year period. So this is where the Spirit of God now has directed our attention. Now if you look at... Uh, and I don't have my, my iPad is not working for some reason, so I'm going to kind of guess at what's coming up. Okay, so we have the three charges that are made against uh, the Apostle Paul. And let's kind of walk through these. Uh, but first off, let me before we look at the charges, let me uh, point out again who has actually showed up to accuse the Apostle Paul. We find in verse 1, the high priest Ananias. So this is kind of like the Jewish legal dream team. If you remember the O.J. Simpson trial, kind of the dream team. So they're bringing the accusers against the Apostle Paul. So the chief priest came all the way down from Jerusalem and he is there. Now, why is he there? Well, he's the most powerful Jew in Israel. If anyone could influence a Roman ruler, it would be the Jewish high priest Because he often colluded with the Romans to maintain his authority and to keep his power in Jerusalem. So he had connections. So if the high priest is there, okay, the the Roman leaders are going to sit up and pay attention because of just the power and authority of the high priest. Then in verse 1, they mention the elders. These are members of the Sanhedrin most likely. And they're going to chime in as the choir later on at the end. And then you have Tertullus in verse 1. Tertullus is a Roman name. He was probably a Hellenistic Jew. He was hired by the Jews to basically be their official spokesman. He is known as uh, kind of like in a professional orator, he's a lead prosecuting attorney. He's also chosen to have this role because he's probably a silver-tongued, smooth-talking, palm-greasing spokesman. And he's there to win over the, uh, the, the, the governor and to make him side with them. So they bring in this professional orator to actually bring the charges against Paul. Now he opens in verse 2 with this, uh, this flowing, flattery, uh, and it's somewhat customary when you're addressing a public leader to begin with, uh, a, a measure of flattery. He goes way overboard, by the way. But in verse two, he says, Since we have through you attained much peace, and by your providence, reforms are being carried out for this nation, and all of that is just a farce. There is really no, uh, measure of peace or reforms that Felix was uh, bringing about within the nation. He had already routed a band of 4,000 Jews, crucified many of the insurgents and innocent Jewish citizens. As a result of that, there are there frequent Jewish backlashes against his ruthless rule Many rebels and assassins roamed the countryside, so it wasn't safe even to travel hardly anywhere, and all that is because of Felix. But Tertullus praises him for the peace and all the reforms that he's brought in the country, and all of that is just to try to is to try to butter him up to get him to side with them. Again, the reforms that are mentioned here in verse two are basically Uh, what he's attributing to Felix. But in reality, he was a a brutal leader. He had put down several insurrections. And about two years after this time period, uh, Caesar Nero will recall Felix. He'll basically demote him, fire him, because of how bad his rule was, because of all the civil unrest and even the Jewish wars later on are going to be somewhat attributed to the corruption of Felix. So again, we got all this flattery going on here. Dripping with exaggeration and false praise. Basically, he's a hypocrite. But he's playing a game of being two-faced. False etiquette for the sake of deception. He's trying to get Felix to, to side with them. So now we come to these three charges. The first charge we find in verse 5, that this, we have found this man to be a real pest and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world. Now, this, uh, this word for pest, interestingly enough, is used in one other place in the New Testament in Luke's Gospel And there it means plague or pestilence. So basically what he's saying about the Apostle Paul, and this is the first accusation, this man is a disease. He's a pestilence. He's a plague. And not only just in in this area, but he stirred up the Jews all over the world. He says there in verse 5, throughout the world, all the Jews are being stirred up. This guy is like a worldwide plague. It's like the the the, the uh, Wuhan virus times 10 has gone all the way around the world. That's what this guy is. I mean, he is a disease and he needs to be removed from us. So that's basically the accusation. The, the emphasis on the, the word dissension here in verse 5 has political overtones. And this is what Felix obviously would be of concern with because his responsibility is to keep law and order within the nation. Okay, you start talking about a guy stirring up dissension, which which also has the idea of riots and insurrections. Now that's more of a concern to Felix. So basically what he's trying to say in this first accusation is that the Apostle Paul is a worldwide danger to Roman rule, not only to stirring up among all the Jews, this dissension causing them to riot, causing all the unrest, and obviously that that would be something serious. Uh, Any Roman ruler would pick up his ears and take notice at the accusation of dissension or riots or insurrection. The second accusation is that He's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now normally, Jesus is referred to as Jesus of Nazareth. And it's usually in the singular. Or Jesus the the Nazarene or something like that. Here it's in the plural, which now it refers to the followers of Jesus the Nazarene. So they're called Nazarenes. And so that's where the name comes from. Uh, The word sect that's found here at the end of verse 5, carries a connotation of a heretical offshoot of Judaism, a false Jewish cult, which is deviant and unacceptable. And uh, and this is why they are bringing this accusation against the Apostle Paul, trying to make uh, Felix realize that not only is he a danger to the Roman Empire, law and order, but he's also a heretic within our own ranks. Now it's interesting, again, that he refers to the sect of the Nazarenes because that's an important word. Even today, we many of us are familiar with this particular sign. And I've seen some of the, the young adults in our own church wear this on a t-shirt. Uh, the Voice the, uh, of Martyrs, I think, probably helps to distribute it. But this is the Arabic letter for the letter N, which represents a Nazarene. And when the, when the, when the, uh, when the Muslims, they, they refer to Christians oftentimes as Nazarenes. And if they put this mark on your home or on your business, basically it is a warning from Muslim jihadists who would paint this red on homes or businesses as a threat to leave or face death by the sword. So Christians in the Muslims world are, are referred to as Nazarenes. And that's the letter N that uh, is used to identify that. So all the way back in the Bible days, uh, that name has been referred to as followers of Jesus Christ. So we come back to the, uh, the third accusation is that Paul tried to desecrate the temple. We see that in verse 6. And that's basically a bunch of uh, uh, fake news as we would say today. They accused him of bringing the Gentile Ephesian Trophimus into the sacred temple area to desecrate the temple. That did not happen. But it first caused the mob to revolt and arrest the apostle Paul. So, uh, but that's part of the false accusation that was being uh, waged against the apostle Paul. Now, in verses six through nine, it seems that Tertullus is also uh, kind of speaking against Lysias, the Roman commander. He says in verse six that. He even tried to desecrate the temple. Then we arrested him. Well, they didn't arrest the Apostle Paul. The mob came together and started beating up on the Apostle Paul. There wasn't any legal judicial arrest process like this sounds. And then he gives all this other kind of talking trash about Lysias in here, whether it's inspired or not, uh, is up for debate. But he's bringing an accusation that Lysias violently overste- overstepped his boundaries. And uh, we have the right under Roman law to execute anybody, any Gentile that enters into the sacred area. And Paul brought a Gentile in there. We have the right to execute. And, uh, and yet all of that is false. But he's accusing Lysias of, of interfering with their right to execute someone in that circumstance given to them by the Roman government. So it's a little bit of trash talk against the commander. And finally, at the end, in verse 8, by examining him yourself, all these matters, you'll be able to ascertain the thing for which we accuse him. And then all the Jews, all the elders, chime in on the attack, asserting that all these things were so. So at this point, now, the Apostle Paul is given the opportunity to defend himself. So when you look at the defense from the Apostle Paul starting in verse 10, he really takes each one of their accusations and he gives a rebuttal to it. So the first accusation was he's a real pest who stirs up dissension throughout the world in verse 5. And then look at how he answers in verse 10. He also starts with a customary word of of acknowledging the governor. He says, when the governor had nodded for him to speak, verse 10, Paul responded, knowing that for many years you've been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Since you can take note of the fact that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And neither in the temple, nor in the synagogues, nor in the city itself, did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot. Nor can they prove to you the charges of which they now accuse me. So he says, you know, Governor. Twelve days ago I entered Jerusalem. I've been here in Caesarea for five, so that leaves me about roughly six days in Jerusalem. I couldn't have stirred up all this trouble in that short period of time. Said so I entered Jerusalem just twelve days ago, and I've been here for five, at least five. So all this accusation, I've done all this trouble, certainly does not fit. Because when I was there, he says, I was in the temple and the synagogues, but I wasn't stirring up a riot. I wasn't even carrying on discussion to cause chaos of any kind. And these guys can't prove their accusations against me either. So he rightly defends himself and uh against this first accusation. The second accusation is that he's a ringleader of the sect, the heretical sect of the Nazarenes, is the idea. And look at how he responds in verses 14 through 16. But this I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law that is written in the prophets. So what does he say? He says, basically, I'm not a part of a heretical sect. I serve the God of my fathers. I'm not, a, I'm not often some wild sect movement, some some fringe element out there that's full of all these false doctrines. I serve the God of our fathers. This is not heretical. I believe everything in the law and the prophets. That's not heretical. I'm a Bible-believing Jew. I'm a follower of the way. Followers of the One who said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through Me. I'm a follower of Him, but I'm serving my, the God of my fathers. I believe the Bible. I believe the law. I believe the prophets. I'm not a heretical sect. I'm not a part of a sect. I serve the God of our fathers. I'm not in a false cult. I believe the promises given by God to our Father. I'm no innovator. I'm not making up new doctrine. I believe the Word of God. So he's very adamant in defending that in fact he is, he is a, a follower of the way. He admits to that. But it's very consistent with biblical truth. And then he goes on to say in verse 15, "...but having a hope in God which these men cherish themselves..." Now what is that hope in God? He goes on, he elaborates that, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. And in view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience both before God and before men. So I hold to the very same hope of our fathers, a hope in the resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. And my conscience conscience is blameless. So they're accusing me of being a ringleader of a false heretical movement called the Nazarenes? Absolutely not. I'm thoroughly biblical. I'm grounded in the law. I'm grounded in the prophets. I believe in the resurrection. All this is orthodox Jewish theology. Except for the Sadducees who rejected the idea of the resurrection. Certainly the Pharisees believed it. So he says, I'm orthodox is basically what he's arguing. My conscience is blameless. I'm serving the God of our fathers. I'm believing the Word of God. So that's how he responds to that second accusation. And then the third accusation that he desecrated the temple in verse 17 and 18. He says, Now after several years I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings in which they found me occupied in the temple. In other words, I wasn't desecrating the temple. I was there bringing my offerings to the temple. I had been purified. I wasn't desecrating anything. I had gone through the ritual purification. I was bringing the alms of the Gentile believers to my people in Jerusalem. I'm not desecrating the temple. There's no support for that whatsoever. He says, I haven't been purified without, in verse 18, without any crowd or uproar. So I wasn't there stirring up anything. I wasn't desecrating anything. I was ceremonial, ceremonially pure. And I was worshiping my God. I wasn't desecrating the temple. And then, look at what he says at the end of verse 18. And this is where basically he now adds a few more aspects of his defense. He says, but there were some Jews from Asia who ought to have been present before you and to make accusation if they should have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves tell what misdeed they found when I stood before the council. So basically what Paul is saying here is that look, I'm serving my God. I was showing love for my people, bringing alms. I was showing respect for the law of God. I went through the ceremonial uh, cleansing to offer the sacrifices with these four guys that were taking a vow. I was not in any way desecrating the temple. And the main guys who had a charge against me were these guys from Ephesus visiting Jerusalem. They were the ones bringing all these charges against me and they're not even here. They're not here. Why aren't they here? Now that's a powerful rebuttal. Because in Roman law, they're standing before the Roman governor Felix. In Roman law, if anyone was to testify to wrongdoing, it must be those who witnessed it. And none of these guys here had witnessed it from what the Jews from Ephesus were saying when they came to Jerusalem. They were complaining about Paul's ministry out in the the dispersion. They're not here. They claim to have witnessed it, but they're not here. And this was a serious violation of Roman law. So Paul very effectively rebuts the accusation even the legitimacy of the charges they're bringing, because there's no witnesses to any of these accusations. And then in verse 21, he comes back to the theme of the resurrection. Let me back up, starting verse 20. Or else let these men themselves tell what misdeed they found when I stood before the council other than for this one statement which I shouted out while standing among them for the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you today. So basically he says, I'm on trial for the resurrection of the dead. So he's already mentioned that back up in verse 15. That he has a hope in God there will certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. And again in verse 21, I'm on trial for the resurrection of the dead. Now what's so interesting about this that I think, that in a witnessing context and sharing the Gospel with unbelievers, one of the major points that Paul makes is referring and mentioning the resurrection of the dead. Now obviously there's a resurrection of Jesus Christ. Mike taught on that last week. But that guarantees a future resurrection of the dead, and it's that resurrection that Paul emphasizes over and over and over again. Let me just uh, jump into uh, to some of this. Let me let me begin by making a few uh, observations about this what what Paul is emphasizing First off when you look at what Paul says in these verses it seems that the language indicates that there is one resurrection a singular resurrection as opposed to multiple resurrections We see this for example in uh, verse 15 that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Not resurrections, plural, but one resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. And that seems to be pretty clear from the text. If you look again at verse 21 that we've just read, Paul refers to the resurrection, one resurrection, of the dead, implying all the dead. Not just some of the dead. This is the language, resurrection of the dead, that implies all the dead. is very much a part of it. If you go back, what he's quoting in verse 21 is what he said before the Sanhedrin back in chapter 23, verse 6, I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. And that's from the NIV. Hope in the resurrection, singular, of the dead. All the dead. Seems to be implied there. Let me belabor this point just for a second. This is what the Lord Jesus taught in John chapter 5. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming, one hour, in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, will come forth. Those who did the good deeds of to a resurrection of life, and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So that all who are in the tombs, everybody that's dead, will hear His voice and come forth in one hour. The hour is coming. A specific, identified time of of the future. And when that hour comes, everybody will be raised from the dead And you'll have the resurrection of life and the resurrection of judgment. One resurrection where all the believers are raised to a resurrection of life. Same resurrection where all the wicked will be raised to a a resurrection of judgment. Jesus also uh, indicated this later on in John when he spoke. This is actually Martha speaking of the resurrection of Lazarus on the last day. So the resurrection of the righteous will be on the last day. And then later Jesus says that the resurrection of those who reject Him, unbelievers, will also be judged at the last day. And that implies they'll be resurrected and judged. So again, it appears that there is only one resurrection and both the righteous and the wicked will be raised at the same time. Now, why do I emphasize that? Why am I making an uh, an observation about that? Well, it comes now that whenever you try to fit together the pieces of the eschatological puzzle, which are always challenging to fit together, if there's just one resurrection, which all the creeds and the confessions speak of as the general resurrection of the dead... One resurrection, all the righteous and all the wicked get raised at the same time. Some to eternal life, some to eternal damnation. One resurrection though, then that at least has to be fit into the puzzle of figuring out all the eschatology, all the prophecy stuff, right? So if you're a dispensational premillennial, you have three resurrections at least, You have a pre tribulational rapture, resurrection, you have a resurrection at the second coming, and a resurrection at the end of the thousand year millennial kingdom. Three resurrections. If you're a historic pre mill, you have two resurrections. One at the second coming, Revelation twenty one through six, the other one at the end of the millennium, Revelation twenty, the end of the the end of the passage. Uh, 11 through 15, two resurrections. But all millennialism and postmillennialism both believe in the one general resurrection of the dead. So I just throw that out, that you can keep that in mind as you're kind of working through, trying to understand the complexities of eschatology. I think the Bible only teaches there's going to be one resurrection of all the dead at that point in time. That seems to be pretty clear in uh, chapter 24, verse 15. But that's not mainly what I want to emphasize. I want to look at this whole concept of the hope of the resurrection. Because this is what, when Paul is is preaching or sharing the gospel to unbelievers, one of the major truths, one of the major things that he witnesses to is his hope in the coming resurrection his own personal resurrection with the with the resurrection of the righteous and this hope of the resurrection is something that you and i today need to have growing very prominently within our hearts and i think too often today we totally uh, put this whole concept of the future glory on the back burner it gets buried under all the piles of problems that we have, the trials that we face, and we need to resurrect the idea of the resurrection in our hearts. So just to look at this whole notion again, Paul, before the Sanhedrin, we've already gone over this in Acts 23, verse 6, I'm on trial today for the hope and resurrection of the dead. He has a hope. What is that future hope? It's a resurrection. Resurrection of the dead. He's going to be a part of it. We just saw again in, with Felix in Acts twenty four fifteen, having a hope in God. What is your hope in God, Paul? That there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. His hope was in the resurrection, that future glory. In Acts 26, later on, we'll eventually get there, Lord willing, as, as Paul is preaching before Festus, he says, I, I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. What is that hope? What is that promise? He he clarifies when He says, why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? It's the resurrection of the dead. That's His hope. That is a tremendous hope that every believer in Jesus Christ should cherish, and we should long for, and we should desire to cultivate All the more within our hearts. Paul says to the uh, church at Colossians that there's a mystery of Christ among the Gentiles. And what is that mystery? It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. And that glory comes at the resurrection. When we are raised from the dead. In 1 Corinthians 2.9, you say, well, the hope of glory. I mean, what is that glory? What's it going to be like? Well, The Scriptures don't give us a lot of information about what that glory is going to be, but it's just absolutely incredible. matter of fact, the Scriptures just basically say it's going to be so incredible that you can't even begin to imagine it now. He wrote to the church at Corinth. He says, "...things which eye has not seen, and ear has not heard, and which have not even entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love Him." And all of that glory and grace will be given to us in its fullest form at the resurrection. It's the resurrection that is our hope. That's what we look forward to. When you try to think of what it's going to be like, again, the Scriptures just you know, paint around the outer edges. Revelation 21 verse 4 says that when we are resurrected and enter into the glory of Christ, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. All of that will be gone in the state of glory that we will enter into through the resurrection. Now, I understand that when a believer dies now, his soul immediately goes to be with Christ, but his body is left behind. But Christ came to redeem us body and soul. So that we await the resurrection when our body is miraculously resurrected from whatever dust it had turned into, is joined with our soul, and then we're in the presence of the Lord forever and ever. In Revelation 22, at that time, on that day, there will no longer be any curse. Imagine it. No more curse, no more sin, no more struggles. No more world system, no more Satan, no more flesh within my heart. All of that will be taken away. All the ramifications of the curse are reversed by the grace of Jesus Christ. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His bondservants will serve Him. They will see His face. The Puritans said, that's the, that's the heaven of heaven. That's the treasure of heaven. We will see the face of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, and His name will be on our foreheads. It's a hope of the resurrection. It's the glory that awaits us in the future. We're not there yet. But oh, how we need to have that hope of the resurrection, the hope of the glory of God. It's a powerful thing in the life of a believer And it's a powerful part of our witness to the world that there is a resurrection coming and there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked and they will stand before God and give an account. You need to turn to Christ now and believe in Him totally on Him for the forgiveness of your sins so that you're not condemned on that day. But for the believer it's the hope of glory, it's the hope of the fullness of salvation. That's what we're looking forward to. Well, let me just that because this theme is prominent in Paul's witness to Felix and the Jews that I'm on trial today for the resurrection. I have a hope in God that there's going to be a a resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. That was such a part of His testimony, of His witness to the unbelieving world. And it's such an important part of the Christian life that I want to just belabor it for a few more points, a few more minutes. Let's just kind of walk through some of how the Scriptures speak of this hope of the resurrection that every believer has. Again, it is a certain hope. Now when we think of hope today, uh, when we use the word hope, you know, I hope it rains. I hope Trump wins. You know, it's it's expressing a desire, but I'm not sure if it's going to come to pass. That's a a hope as we use it today. In the Bible, when it talks about this kind of a hope, it is a rock-solid certain hope. Don't ever question it. It's going to take place. So Paul said he has a hope in God that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Certainly. It's going to take place. It is a certain hope. Now Satan and our own doubts and our own unbelief will sometimes cause us to question that. But Christ and the Scriptures say it is certain to take place. So you believe God. You don't believe your own fears. You don't believe your own doubts. You believe God. Next, it is a joyful hope. Paul wrote to the Romans that through whom we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult... That is, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. It is a joyful hope. So that when you think about the hope to come, the glory of God, which we will enter into in all of its fullness at the resurrection, that should give us joy. And if you need more joy in your life, you need to be thinking more about your hope. If your joy is sinking, if your joy is like a, a flat tire that has a perpetual leak in it, and it can, you fill it up and it continually deflates, you need to be thinking more about the glory that awaits us, our, our hope yet to come. It is, it is designed to give us joy today when I look at all that is waiting for me. It should give me joy. It's also our invisible hope. It requires faith. In Romans 8.24, Paul writes to the Romans, for in hope, and the hope in this context is a future redemption of our body which takes place at our resurrection. Verse 23, for in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? So it's an invisible hope. You can't see it. You can't go out and touch it today. And that's why it requires faith. Because faith in Hebrews 11.1 1 is what? What is faith? It's the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. That's why it takes faith. You've got to have faith in the hope to come. But it's an invisible uh, hope. It's something that we can't uh, see with our visible eyes. It's also a blessed hope. Titus 2.13 Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. It's a blessed hope. Why is it a blessed hope? Because that's when our blessed Savior comes back down to earth to retrieve His own. He's blessed. It's a blessed hope. But it's also when we enter into that glory and we're blessed as well. It's a blessed hope. Because the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ will appear. And how we need to be longing for that and looking forward to that. That is our blessed hope when you, when you have that anticipation of the coming of Christ and the glory to be brought to us, it brings blessings into your life, into your heart, into your mind, into your soul. It's a blessed hope. It's also a, a living hope. Peter writes of it, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have a living hope, and it's a living hope because it's tied to a living Savior. Because Christ died and rose again on the third day, was glorified, ascended to the right hand of God the Father, He is a living Redeemer, a living Lord, a living Savior. And we have a living hope. It's alive because Jesus is alive and His resurrection guarantees our resurrection. It's a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. it's also an exclusive hope because we have many hopes uh, in this life, temporally speaking. Yeah, that's fine. We have lots of hopes. Uh, We have hopes on a lot of temporal things, health issues, job-related. We have lots of hopes. Hopes with children. Hopes of all kinds of hopes. But there should be one hope that out-hopes all the other hopes. And that's this one. Look at what Peter said. We've read it already in our Scripture reading. Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. And fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Man, when Christ comes back, look at all the grace that will be given to me. I'll be resurrected. My body and soul will be glorified. No more curse, no more sin, no more sorrow, no more death. I'll enter into the very presence of my Savior forever and ever. Fix your hope completely on that. I'm not saying you can't have other lesser temporal hopes, but this hope ought to outshine all the other hopes. I mean, think of the glory that's waiting for you, that's stored up for you in heaven. It should be an exclusive hope in that regard should also be a purifying hope. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. This is one of those purifying hopes that when we look forward that one day I'm going to be like Christ, all the sins are going to be purged out of my life one day I will be holy in His presence. And when you start looking and longing for that, it purifies us now. Because I want to be more like Christ and I struggle with my sin now in the world and Satan, but one day I will be made like Him and I will see Him just as He is. And when I have that hope on that future glory, then it purifies my heart now. It gives me more grace to fight against my sin, against the world, against Satan. It's beautiful. This is a, a renewing or a reviving hope. Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and he says, though we do he said, therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. So again. If you know anything about Paul and his suffering, five times he received the Jewish 39 lashes, three times he was beaten with, with rods, he was stoned, countless other beatings. His outer man was decaying. Let me tell you, this man had aches and pains like we cannot imagine. His outer man was, was decaying. Our outer man is decaying sicknesses, illnesses, all these things. We're getting older. More aches and pains. Our outer man is decaying. But that doesn't mean your inner man has to grow old. Your inner man can actually grow young. It can be revived. It can be renewed. But what causes that? Well, Paul tells us in verse 17. For momentary light affliction, and that's what he called all those beatings that he received. Momentary light. It's light because it's not anything like the suffering in hell that people are going to endure forever. This is light. Getting stoned, whipped, flogged, light. That's nothing. Because I'm not going to hell. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond our comparison. While we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporal. The things that are not seen are eternal. See where His focus is. All my suffering. All my pains. All my struggles. Momentary light affliction. Because that's not where my mind is dwelling is on my problems and on my pain and on my suffering. My mind is dwelling on that eternal way to glory that Christ has waiting for me. At the resurrection, the hope of glory far beyond all comparison. That's where I'm drawing the, that new strength to rise up like with wings of eagles. This is what is making me younger and more vibrant because my focus is on the grace waiting for me at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a renewing, a reviving hope. It's also a defended hope. It's something that we need to stand up for. As Peter says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. The hope that he's talking about, he mentioned earlier in chapter 1 of A hope of the inheritance which is reserved for us in heaven which neither moth nor rust nor thieves can take away from us. But it's a hope that we need to be telling others about and they may say, well, why do you think you're going to heaven? Why do you think you're going to be resurrected and glorified? Well, then you get to explain the Gospel to them. It's a hope that should be defended. It's also a hope that stabilizes your life. So many of us, we go through the winds and storms of circumstances that are very troubling to us. We all have those. Different degrees, different ways, different areas of life. Things that weigh us down. Things that toss us back and forth like being in a hurricane wind. And you have what the author of Hebrews says that this hope, and I think ultimately he's talking about the hope of being with Christ in heaven, resurrection, glory, all of that. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul. A hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Christ has entered as a forerunner for us having been become a high priest forever according to the, to the order of Melchizedek. So our anchor is in heaven. You know, most ships, you throw an anchor down to the bottom of the, of the water, right? Well, when Christ rose from the dead and ascended up into heaven... He is our anchor and He went up. So our anchor is in heaven now and there's an unbreakable chain of grace that unites with the heart of all of His elect children. Guarantees that we'll eventually be there with Him. But He is the anchor. So in the midst of all the storms and the winds and the waves and the turbulence of life, and I just... Feel so unsettled and unstable in my life, and everything's topsy turvy, and I don't understand what's going on. Christ is an anchor. The grace that He has in heaven for us is an anchor for our soul. It stabilizes us by His grace. And finally, it's a motivating hope. In 1 Corinthians 15, that great chapter on the resurrection. Paul says that in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised and perishable and we will be changed. Thinking of the resurrection of the righteous, that the dead are going to be raised and whatever is perishable will become imperishable. Mortal will become immortal. will be raised and glorified in newness of life. And he goes through all this incredible information, description of, of the coming resurrection at the second coming of Christ. And then in the very end of that section, he said, therefore, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. In other words, the future glory of the resurrection should motivate us to serve Christ now. To live for the Lord now to engage in the labor of service and ministry now. Because regardless of, of how it may tire me out or wear me out, look at what awaits us in the future. That all death will be swallowed up by life. And at that point, all suffering, all pains, all service for the Lord will be amply rewarded by His grace in heaven, in glory, forever and ever. So don't lose heart. Be steadfast, immovable. Don't give up. Don't stop. Keep living for Christ. Keep serving the Lord. Keep your eyes on the resurrection. The glory yet to come. Well, in conclusion, I think the Apostle Paul is using the doctrine of the resurrection to proclaim a biblical truth to not only Felix, the high priest, the elders, and even Tulus. But we also find that not only is it a, a tremendous important part of our Gospel witness, but it's also a great encouragement for all believers today. Because of the times we live in, we live in tumultuous days, we all have our own set of unique trials and troubles and sorrows. And those things can bake us dry. We can become nearsighted so that we only focus on all the problems, all the issues I'm dealing with around me. And I just start to sink in this malaise of discouragement. I just, I'm focused on everything. And what the Word of God tells us with this doctrine of the resurrection, this hope of the resurrection, is to lift your eyes up. Lift your eyes up. And look at the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And let that encourage you. Let that invigorate your soul. It's like those sailors that are on the ship and they get lost at sea in a violent storm and they lose all their food and water and they're languishing on deck under the hot sun and they, they, they still don't know where in the world they are and they're lost and they're dying and they're famished and they're just so out of energy they're just lying on the deck waiting to die. And one of them lifts himself up over the edge of the ship and off in the future he sees land. And he shouts out, Land! Land! I see Land! And the thought of the hope of the, of the land and the rescue and the blessings revives all of the crew and they man the sails and they eventually move the ship into the harbor for safety and provision. And it's that future sight, it's that hope of the glory of God to come in the future. That future land, that, that heavenly Canaan land, if you will, when we gaze upon that, it can revive us and encourage us and give us strength. And bless us, even though we may be outwardly suffering through many struggles and many temptations at this time. Paul says, therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above and not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So to be heavenly minded, to have a hope of the resurrection, to have a hope of glory that the Bible gives to us, I tell you what you and I need to do, and that is we need to be more conscious and deliberate to meditate upon these great truths. If you don't, you won't be thinking about it and you'll miss the blessings of it. We need to be more conscious and deliberate about meditating on the hope of glory, the hope of the resurrection, and all the grace that's waiting for us. And then let that funnel all of the blessings back down into your soul now as you're going through all the struggles of life. And may God through His Holy Spirit incline our minds to meditate more upon the hope of our resurrection. Let's close them. Heavenly Father, we want to thank You for the faithful Gospel witness of the Apostle Paul. As he defended himself before Felix, Lord, he began to reveal the heart and soul of the hope of the believer, the hope of the resurrection, which is a blessing to believers and should be an object of great terror to unbelievers as well. The Lord, in doing that, He's reminding them that there is a God who rules on His throne. And He is a righteous judge. And there is an hour coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and will come forth. And those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone to save them from their sins, who show forth that saving faith by the evidence of good works in their life, will enter in and experience the resurrection of the righteous. But those who have turned away from Jesus Christ, who refuse to accept and receive the free gift that He alone offers through His shed blood on Calvary's cross, and when they say no to Christ or I'll deal with it later in Christ, then they will stand before this judge and by their vile deeds, that may even appear to be righteous works, but are but filthy rags in your sight, they will be resurrected and damned with the wicked. These are sober truths, Lord. We pray that any who are here this morning who have not put their trust in Christ would cry out to him, would trust him, would believe upon him, and receive the free gift of everlasting life. And for those of us who by Your grace know the Lord, O God, fill us with the joy of our salvation. Fill us, Lord, with that sanctifying hope of the resurrection, of the glory and grace that awaits us at the second coming of Jesus Christ. That we might be useful today in the hands of the Master to do His work for His glory